Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth Neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came, and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand. And thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. We have actually only been a short space in the book, 
with respect to text, but a long space with respect to sermons. So I thought it would be a good idea as we begin this fifth chapter to get a sense of where we are in the whole. For the right interpretation of this book, it's so very important that we maintain a sense of context and relative position. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Remember here, and if you remember, our general goal has been throughout to use the lessons that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, teaches concerning how to interpret this book. Rather than trying to impose an external structure, try to discern the internal structure and what the Spirit teaches concerning it. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we have nothing less than a God-given outline for the book. This is what John is commanded to write, and it falls out as a very natural outline. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. You will remember in this three-part outline, the first part, the things which John had seen, was the vision of Jesus Christ, king and high priest in the midst of the seven churches tending to their light as they are portrayed as being uh, lampstands. That's what John had seen in a vision. Then John was commanded to write the things that are. This was the condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which we saw in chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, the third part of the outline, and uh, by far and away the largest part of the outline, are the things which shall be Hereafter, when we turned to chapter 4, it is really the beginning of the last phase of the book, the things which shall be hereafter. In chapters 4 and 5 in particular, John first is setting the visionary stage for us. The history of things that shall be hereafter will begin to unfold in chapter 6. But first, he must set his stage, and the staging is very important. We were taught right from the very beginning of the book that the principal focus and burden of the whole would be events that were yet future to John. Look at uh, verses 1 through 3. Right from the very beginning, the Lord teaches us the principal focus of the book, which is the future. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. I want you to notice that. This is a revelation to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Future events. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So I want you to notice here that we learn at least two very important things in the first verse. 
that the uh, content of the book is going to be things which must shortly come to pass. That tells us that it's dealing with historical events. Historical events are going to be prophesied and foretold. And we also learn that these historical events are future events. They are things which must shortly come to pass. The book is now to be open and read for the time is at hand. This is in contrast to the sealing of the book in the time of Daniel. In some ways, interpreters have said that um, Revelation in some ways is basically the continuation of Daniel's vision of the five kingdoms or the last part of it expressed at large. You remember he saw the four beasts and then there was a fifth kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man. Uh, basically, Revelation is that fourth beast and the kingdom of the Son of Man extending through all of the earth, their relationship and conflict one with uh, another. But in Daniel's time, Daniel is told, Go thy way, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So for Daniel, these things were far distant, whereas in John's time, the time is at hand. The time is now. And the book, which formerly had been closed and sealed up and very little understood, is now going to be opened by the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5, we have a visionary scene set. If you want to think of it in the terms of something like a drama, here we have the setting of the stage upon which all of the events will unfold. As I mentioned, John's relative position is important. And I'll also point out that John is not just a, um, an observer in the vision. He will also be a participant. So John and his relative position is very important. He is standing at the door of the tabernacle. He's able to turn one way and look within. He's able to turn the other way and look without. If he turns to look without, as he will shortly do, he will, say the, he will see the tabernacle courtyard and he will be able to look down, as it were, from the top of Mount Zion down onto the Roman world. Currently, uh, John is oriented toward the center of this scene and of history, the throne of God. As he looks into the holy place, there is no veil obscuring sight into the holy of holies. There the ark, the footstool of the divine throne, is visible and observable to him. He sees the four living creatures, the ministers of the living God there ministering. He sees them surrounded by the 24 priest kings, representatives of all of the people of God. He sees the spirit, the light of the churches. And he sees the activity of the place. And you ought not to be surprised. The activity of the place is the worship of God. There all of the people of God are represented as worshiping. The four living creatures call out continually 
And the people of God respond continually. Right at the very end of chapter 4, we see them worshipping God as the eternal and omnipotent creator who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that's really the segue. You remember it was they worshipped and said, for thy pleasure, or because thou hast willed it, they are. All created things are and were created. So we see that all things, both creation and God's providential sustaining of that creation is all done according to the counsel of his own will. Here expressed as for thy pleasure we have our existence and we're created. Now the scene is going to become more specific as we move toward the history. The revelation of God's will for his church. This brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written, within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Notice here that John says that he saw. It's a marker that the, the vision is not only continuing, but it's here marked as advancing. So that... Here, he sees something further, something further to be noted. I think we should also note that the great being who sits upon the throne, the government of the universe remains central. And even as John's attention in later parts of the vision will be directed away to other things, our minds ought never to leave that central position that all of these things are being governed by that great being who is sitting upon the throne. He is not abdicated. He is not distant. He's there on the throne and ruling over all. I might just make one point of, of brief application. This world can seem very chaotic to us. We see nuclear fallout in Japan and it's a frightening thing. We see uh, economic convulsions in our land and in other places. And it seems as if everything is out of control because it's certainly out of our control. But we should never lose sight of the sovereign who sits upon the throne and rules over all of these things and is working all of these things according to his own good pleasure. And we'll return to that at the end. It says that this great being holds in his hand a book now here, uh, by the word book, you should read scroll. He has a scroll in his hand, the old kind of book. It's basically a single sheet of papyrus or parchment that's rolled up from, from its ends. It's very clear from what follows that this scroll is the scroll of history. God's decree. And this scroll... Uh, is going to contain everything from John's time to the end of the world. The return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment, and even the eternal state beyond that. But it's more particular than that, in the sense that the scroll uh, has, has within it, as its principal theme and content, God's special providence toward his church. So it's not just all of the events that will happen in the world. Uh, 
It is God's special providence toward the church. I do believe in your outline I included Confession of Faith 5-7. Very beautiful section of the confession and very comforting. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. This is God's special providence toward his church as he cares for her in the midst of her many tests, trials, travails, and difficulties on her way to victory and glory, following in procession her great head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The unbelieving world is taken into account, but only as it bumps up against the church. And as the church has some bearing upon it, and it has some bearing upon her. But that unbelieving world is not the principal focus of the scroll in the hand of the great God of heaven. The church and his providence toward her is its great theme. We should also notice that that book is portrayed as being in his right hand. Which for most human beings on earth means at least two things. It is the hand of skill, dexterity. Uh, it's, uh, this is uh, God's decree wrought out by his wisdom and worked by his skill. It is also the hand of strength or power. So all of its contents are arranged according to his wisdom and his good pleasure, his skill, and also wrought by his power. None of the things that his purpose can be thwarted. James Durham also says that in the sense that it's in his right hand and sealed, it shows that it's determined by him alone. That he did not take any creatures into his counsel when he determined it. He determined it by his own wisdom, skill, and power, and then he sealed it up and kept it away from the eyes of every creature. We see that our God is sovereign, and in this we also see what the confession says, our God is most absolute. He, is, uh, he affects all things, but is affected by none. He is absolute. He determines uh, all of the things that will happen in creation and providence. And he took no creature into counsel in that determination. This scroll is written within and without, on the front side and on the back side. And if you think of a scroll, it's also fitting to say it's got writing on the inside of it and on the outside of it as it's rolled up in a concave shape. Front and back is the basic uh, meaning. Most interpreters take this to mean that it is full of matter, that it's a full history. God's decree is complete. There is no blank space, nothing to be added. Without denying that, I think that there's more in view here that will help us understand the structure of the book as it, uh, as it unfolds in front of us. Uh, E.B. Eliot points out that it was the practice of the ancients to write the main body of their work on one side of the scroll and frequently to have explanatory commentary on the back side. Uh, 
And so it would be written in, in uh, columns, the main text, and on the back side, mirroring those same columns, there would be explanation of the things that had been written. I do think that if we're going to understand the structure of the apocalypse without confusion, we have to understand that this is the meaning and the significance. In your outline, I, I know that it's very difficult to see. I'll try to get you a better copy at some point. But E.B. Elliot provided this, I just put the first part of it. The scroll, you can see the seven seals there, but, but right now notice that there's the writing within or on the front side, and then the explanatory comments. Some of the visions are explanation. It works something like this in brief. In Revelation chapter 11, you have a character that is introduced but is taken for granted. The two witnesses are prophesying, and then the beast, who suddenly appears on the stage without explanation, is involved in the murder of these witnesses. Now, it's hard to become a naive reader again, but if you can imagine reading through the book for the first time, coming upon this section and saying, wait a minute, who is this character? Flip over to the back side. Revelation chapters 12 and 13. An explanation, a large explanation as to the identity of this beast. Uh, when we get there, we'll talk about it, but this understanding relieves a lot of confusion as to uh, the re recapitulation theories. Is it telling the same history just over and over and over again? Some have said, you know, it tells the same history over seven times. The answer to all of that is no. The main history is unfolded in the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls or vials, and the rest of it is explanatory commentary when uh, bits of particular interest and difficulty come up, we get some further explanation. So I don't deny that it's a full scroll, full of matter, but I do think that there's greater significance to it be, being written on both sides. It does appear to me to be the custom of writing the main body on one side and explanatory commentary on the back side. And one final thing, it said that it is sealed with seven seals. Of course, you know that uh, the number seven is language of fullness, perfection, completion. This book is completely sealed up. You have to understand that if you're going to understand the lamentation of the people of God, that no one is found worthy to open it until the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah appears to open it, because it is completely sealed. But I do think it also implies a full and perfect history that is fully and perfectly sealed up and hidden from the eyes of men. And the fact that there are multiple seals, as we, we will see, it's going to be opened in stages. And that brings us to this little picture, and one of the reasons why I didn't need it to be all that clear. You see at the very top, those seven seals, see the seven Roman numerals? Basically, the way that it works is as you would begin to unfold it, you would come to a seal. And without breaking that wax seal, you couldn't proceed to unfold it any further. 
But once you break it, you can see a little bit more. And you break the next one and you can see a little bit more and so on. So this is uh, something of a pictorial representation of how you would go about unrolling this scroll and how it could be sealed seven times over. Here uh, we have really the, uh, the first introduction of what had been discussed, which is this book, this revelation is primarily about things which must shortly come to pass and that the time is now. And now the scroll of history is presented and set before our eyes. And as soon as that begins to be unfolded, we will be in the proper subject matter of this book as a whole. I wanted to take away from this just one doctrine. In all God's providence, he has a special regard to the welfare of his church. First, if, if I might say this... This uh, doctrine also answers something of a challenge to our historicist approach to this book. Our age is an age that is characterized as being politically correct. So one of the contemporary objections to the historicist approach to this book is that it seems to be very Eurocentric. So here you're saying that the most significant things that happen in the history of the world are European and maybe North African, but that's about it. Weren't there significant things happening in other parts of the world? Among the um, Native Americans of the, uh, of the Americas or among the Far Easterners? Why are these left out? This is not a politically correct interpretation. But as I pointed out, John's apocalypse is not about providence in general, but about God's special providence to his church. The focus is on the church. And as soon as you grasp that, you will understand why the focus in the first place, as we go through the book, it's not going to end there. But the focus in the first place is upon Europe. Because that's where the gospel first took root and where it took its strongest root. Even to the present day, Christianity remains the dominant theme in the West. During the time of my undergraduate, I took a, a literature class, contemporary fiction class, with a very interesting Presbyterian or, uh, uh, professor. And his idea, even for contemporary American literature, is that probably until the 1970s, all literature in America was still in dialogue with its Puritan past, as if it just couldn't get away from it. Whether it was positive or negative, the Puritan past was still the dominant theme. Now, it does seem with the 60s and 70s, there has been some break with the Puritan past. But there's no escaping the fact that Christianity is still rooted in the West and continues to be something that in all things must be contended with. Now, people who complain about this Eurocentric or Western emphasis will say, well, didn't Christianity also go early into the Eastern countries? And it did. Uh, 
However, there are two things that are very significant that we must keep in in mind. Uh, If you remember back to our lessons in the doctrine of Christ, the Christianity that spread into the eastern countries, even as far far east as uh, China, uh, was of the Nestorian variety. If you don't remember what that is, it's okay. But it's basically a misunderstanding of Christ. Uh, that he's not just two natures, fully God and fully man, but two persons, the eternal Son of God, possessed the man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the kind of Christianity primarily that spread into the East. And in the East, they made a great mistake. Eastern Christianity tended to unite itself with political movements, particular kings, And what would happen is that when those kings rose and fell, so did Christianity with those kings. So Christianity never took deep root in the East, but was, for the most part, uprooted and had little emphasis until the modern era, really until uh, uh, Britain began its great missionary effort to try to reach back into the East. So there was certainly lesser impact, if I might just digress. We should take the Eastern churches as a cautionary tale. Uh, The church of Jesus Christ should never unite itself uh, uh, thoroughly with political movements and political parties to where it shares their, their fortunes and their fates. The church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. In our own day and age, there is a bit of... Um, uh, caution to be taken, you should know that Christianity is not roughly equivalent to republicanism. It's not. They are different things. And they must remain different things. So just by way of recap, this is God's special providence toward his church. We will find throughout the book where the church is, there the spotlight will always be. So if the church is in Uh, Europe and North Africa, the spotlight will be there. When the church makes its way to America, we'll find that the spotlight will shift and uh, be seen there. But this is about the church. Also, it's something to consider as we teach our children history. You can't teach everything all at one time. What do you teach is the things of first importance. The history of the people of God in all ages. That is the thing of principal importance. Here, um, in our doctrine, I I want to start first in a more general way and then work our way more specifically. Here, as uh, great themes in John's Apocalypse, you have God's preservation of his church and the church on its way to victory by God's power. And this is very encouraging to us, even though these are things in in a general way. What we will find in our book is that Uh, There will be dark times of persecution and apostasy. There will be times of such great darkness that it will seem almost as if the light has been snuffed out. So times of great trial for God's people indeed. But we are taught and told throughout that the church will endure. Not by her power, but by the power of the Spirit of God. This is a very comforting doctrine for us as we live in a time when it looks 
that uh, if America remains impenitent, it will come face to face with the great God of history and suffer uh, its demise in history, perhaps still even as a young nation, a child of a nation. This can seem like a discouraging thing, but for the body of Christ, we can be well assured of this, that the church will survive that as well. The church will continue to endure long after the time that America just becomes a footnote in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, as we consider the history of the world, the church frequently thrives in the midst of such things as a demonstration of the power of her Savior and her God. But more than this, we will not have understood John's apocalypse if we see it as being a bare preservation of the church, a barely getting by. This is a history of the church on its way to victory through many tribulations entering into the kingdom of God. This encourages us in that our labor and our warfare is not in vain. It's hard for us to think of ourselves in this way, but we are part of that movement, that historical movement toward ultimate victory. And I hope that this uh, inspires all of our work. We can work with courage and strength and cheerfulness because none of it is in vain. All of it is on the way to that ultimate victory. I've told you in times past, even what appear to be setbacks in our eyes are movements toward that ultimate victory. And so we are a people that ought to be immune to discouragement. We should believe these things. And may the Lord help our unbelief. Because we are on our way to victory. We cannot lose. I wanted to finish up with some focus upon God's special providence upon the individual members of His church. Our God not only superintends the great themes and movements of history, He also uh, superintends all of the particular people and all of the movements of all of the atoms that are involved and everything that happens. I once told you, uh, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the uh, piece of literature, but Sproul said that if there's even a, a, an atom that is bouncing around this universe outside of the control of God, then it's a possibility that his purposes will not be brought to pass. And then he cited that bit of literature for want of the pin, the stirrup was lost for want of the stirrup. The saddle was lost for want of the saddle. The rider was lost for want of the rider. The battle was lost for want of the battle. The war was lost for want of that war. The world was lost. And it all started with a pin. See, if there's one atom that's bouncing around this universe outside of the control of God, then there's some possibility that he will be unable to bring his purposes to pass. But isn't that contradicted by this vision where the scroll is in the right hand, the hand of strength, and his purposes cannot be defeated. So we receive promises not only concerning the church in general, but for every single one of us, for every single believer in Jesus Christ, we have a promise that all things are being wrought for our good. 
We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 If we believe this, then this will be very comforting to our souls indeed. And we must believe because frequently we will not understand. Difficulties will come and we will not be able to see how these things are good for us. You remember that uh, Job, in the midst of his trial, was not able to see uh, uh, how God was working in these things. Couldn't see God's intention and his purpose. Couldn't see how these things were all working together for his good. Perhaps by the end, he starts to see how this has been good for his soul indeed and useful to further his own sanctification, useful for glorifying God. But it is interesting to me, one of the things that I've always found very attractive about the book of Job is it's a very human book in the sense that Job never does get an explanation from God as to why these things have happened to him. As the readers, we get a little bit more explanation in the sense that we know it has something to do with a transaction that takes place in heavenly places. But even then, God does not say why he concedes. When the devil makes his appearance and says that he wants to sift Job as wheat, God concedes and grants the devil's request within certain limitations. But he never does say why he grants it. And at the end, you would half expect God to uh, intervene and explain to Job why all of this was necessary. And what he was doing in all of this. But he doesn't. At the end he shows up and he says, I am God. You are Job. That's that. And Job says, I spoke once and I'll speak no more. I spoke about things that I did not understand. I lay my hand upon my mouth and I repent in dust and in ash. In this world's realm, it does not appear that Job ever did get very much explanation as to why he had to pass through the fiery trials. But no doubt now in heavenly places, he has had a fuller explanation and seen a fuller display of how all of this was glorifying to God and good for his own soul. This did lead me to reflect some upon the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said to his disciples shortly before the confusing time of his crucifixion, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. He says here, you're not going to understand what I'm doing or why I'm doing it just now. But you will understand hereafter. And that's the promise for us. We know in a general way that all of these things are good for us. And we must receive it in faith because frequently we're not going to understand. But we do have the promise of the Lord that we will understand hereafter. So we must uh, trust and wait. Trust and wait. When afflicting providence come, it's time for that exercise of faith that all of these things are good for us. And I want you to remember when the next affliction comes, the scroll that is in the hand of God, that scroll that 
writes out the, the future of the church, not just in a general way. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your name and your history is included in that scroll. And I want you to remember that that scroll is in the right hand of the Most High, the sovereign over all of history. He's told you that in that history, your personal history, all things have been wrought for your good. And it's in the hand of his power and the hand of his skill. So your good will certainly be achieved. And may the Lord uh, teach us to believe this and help us in our unbelief. Let us pray together.